Welcome to The Expressionists, the podcast that explores how idioms connect us with the past and to each other. I'm Olivia Rosenman. And I am Helen Reinstrand. And we think that this show will really be your cup of tea. But first, we have a couple of important issues to address. We have entered in the Australian Podcast Awards and we would really appreciate your vote. So if you love this podcast as much as we do, I mean, we really, we really do. That's yeah, no, fair. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. I think love's the feeling. Yep. Uh, then you can head to australianpodcastawards.com and vote for us. Tell all your friends. Do whatever you can. Get your grandma to sign up. Just give us all the votes. We love you. We would love you to do that. Secondly, we are at episode 10 of season two, which means, yes, this is the last episode of our second season. It's been a roller coaster ride, a real whirlwind. We've loved every minute, but we are taking another well-earned break. We will be back. Just keep an eye on your social media feeds. And if you want to make sure you don't miss our return to glory, sign up to our email newsletter. It's simple to do and you can find that on our website expressionist.audio forward slash newsletter. Now, let's get on with the show, Helen. Today, we are talking tea. Yes, tea. That's right. Not the letter, but the hot beverage. And because it's International Women's Day this week, we are going to talk about the complex relationship between tea and gender. A storm in a teacup? Not in the slightest. So have a cup of tea, a Bex, but skip the lie down and instead listen in as we take a journey through the history of this hot beverage and the way that it has infused itself throughout English. Helen, we've talked about quail eggs before on the show. We have indeed. You don't like them. Oh, well, you don't. You I like, like them a lot, actually. Yeah. They're tiny, delicious little nuggets. Yeah, I had one recently and it was great. But didn't I know spew. I didn't spew. <laughs> I know they don't agree with you. So I wonder, is there any amount of money that you would eat 100 quail eggs for? 100? I don't think I'd make it that far. I mean, would you do it for all the tea in China? I mean, I like tea a lot. But there are other places you can get tea these days. That's true. That is true, and we will talk about that right now. So, of course, I want to talk about this idiom, not for all the tea in China, which means not at any price. So, Helen, any guesses as to the origin of this expression? I have to assume that it is at least after the time that English started buying tea from China, and it was like a valuable commodity in like the 18th century. You're right, and it was. But what is surprising about this idiom is that, in fact... It comes from Australia. No. It does. It does. And on and perhaps that is not so surprising. And, of course, with the colonization of Australia, British did export their tea culture. But, no, it is a really interesting and quite unusual expression in that the first couple of usage examples in the Oxford English Dictionary are from Australian sources. So in 1937, it appears in a Dictionary of Slang and Unconventional English written by Eric Honeywood Partridge, who was an Australian man. Well, when I say Australian, I really mean Kiwi. So he was born in New Zealand and grew up in Australia. 
And then later in 1943, uh, it's recorded in Kylie Tennant's novel Ride on Stranger. In fact, I also located another earlier usage from 1895, again from an Australian source, The Amateur Fisherman's Guide by Charles Thackeray who was quite a prominent fisherman in the New South Wales Fishermen's Association. It's an interesting example of what you talked about last week, Helen, which was this idiomatic creativity. Yeah. It's sort of a way to illustrate an intensity of something. So this is, you know, obviously all the tea in China is going to cost a lot of money. So not for all the tea in China means you're not willing to do something for what represents a really large amount of money. So, you know, similar to I'm so hungry I could eat a horse or the arse off a low flying duck, depending on whichever idiom school of that particular idiom you um, adhere to, or, you know, I'm so angry I could kill you, these kind of emotive, emphatic explanations of an intensity of something. So once you understand uh, the geoeconomics of tea, I just made that up, geoeconomics. That's good. I like it. Yeah, good. It makes a lot of sense why not for all the tea in China represents a large amount of money. So to take the most simple figure to illustrate this, of course, China is still the largest tea producing country in the world. Their annual output is 1.9 million tons. Holy moly. It's a lot. It's about 38% of the world total. That's according to the UN's FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization. Second in line is India, um, which is 1.2 million tons. So not far behind. And then The third and fourth two largest uh, countries are Kenya and Sri Lanka. Interesting and surprising to me, at least. Sri Lanka, no, but Kenya, a little bit, yes. Yeah, Kenya's surprising, but Sri Lanka's is teeny tiny little... It is tiny. It's quite small. But they are the makers of Dilma. True. Which is my choice. It is your choice. It is my choice, tea. Tea choice. Helen, you've been a very influential figure in my tea consumption journey, and I just would like to thank you for that. Um, you're very welcome. I mean, likewise, actually, I think it's been an exchange. It's been a cultural exchange. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> it, it is true. We both have some interesting uh, insight to offer into the consumption of tea. So let's start from the arrival of tea in Britain. So tea first arrived in Britain in the 1600s. It was brought by sailors from the ships of British of the British East India Company, which was traveling throughout outside of Europe and a lot in Asia, and they were bringing back tea, often as gifts. It wasn't really a big import product at that time, but they did bring it back as gifts, and it was often called China drink. Oh, China drink. Yeah, love a good China drink. Oh, yeah, in my research I came across in Samuel Pepys' diary. In 1660, someone gives him tea, and he writes in brackets, a China drink, like this. (laughs) Um, He didn't really like it. It's catchy, though. China drink. China drink. Of course, that one didn't really stick, and people went more with a sort of transliteration of various Chinese words. So, of course, Mandarin Chinese for tea is cha, um, but there's a southern sort of Min, Amoy area dialect that it's written as T-E. I'm actually not sure how that's pronounced. Te? Te? Tea? Maybe? Something more similar. Something similar. Right, and that's where the ports were they were getting the That's right. Fujian, especially. The East India Company starts importing tea into Britain sort of in the mid-1600s, and it became very popular. And men would drink a lot of tea in coffee houses as it rose in popularity, and then women would drink tea at home. That will have some bearing on the phrase that I want to talk about later on. 
Excellent. So, but let's stick with the economics of tea for the minute. Pretty early on, the British government realises that they need to tax tea. So they smack a tax on tea in the mid-1600s, 1689 or aroundabouts. And it was quite a high tax. So, of course, what do you do when there's a high tax on something or it's hard to get something? You get it uh, from pirates. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Then emerged a very widespread illegal or black market trade in tea, smuggling tea into the country. And also there was a lot of adulterating tea to make it go further. So the tax was really high. It remained high right through to the 18th century. At the height of this black market, some have estimated that as much as 7 million pounds of tea was imported illegally into Britain each year compared with the legal import of 5 million. Pretty astounding. So people really wanted some tea. Yeah, you'd think that the government might have invested some more of those taxes into enforcing the law. And Well, this is before they have police. You're right. And we have talked about the history of policing on a previous episode, haven't we? Yep. So finally in 1784, the then Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger, great title, <laughs> decided enough's enough, got to get rid of this tax. It's impractical. So he slashed it from 119% pretty massive tax to 12.5% and suddenly tea was legal and affordable which virtually stopped the illegal trade overnight and meant that tea's consumption rose in popularity across all classes of society whereas previously it had been very much an upper class drink. Of course all the while Britain's trying to deal with the fact that China has this monopoly on this highly desirable product several other desirable products as well, uh, which led to this huge trade deficit between China and Britain. So then this this trade Im- imbalance is a key factor in, in the opium wars. And eventually it leads Britain to introduce tea into their, their nearest colony, India, so that they can try and break this monopoly. So... It's the complicated geopolitical economic history, which we can't get deep down into the nitty-gritty of here. But interestingly, it has inspired another idiom involving tea in China. What's that got to do with the price of tea in China? So this idiom reflects the relationship between complex geoeconomic issues. I'm just going to go with geoeconomic. I think it's great. Um, No, with complex geopolitical issues with global economics and how they relate to your everyday person. Yeah, indeed. I think it's a really good example of that. So, Helen, I just wanted to share one more interesting piece of tea and China-related idiom. Please do. So I discovered on this great blog called What's on Weibo, which is, Weibo is, of course, one of China's biggest social media platforms, and this great woman writes a regular blog explaining what's going on on this big platform for English speakers. So she was writing about um, how in the spring of 2013, this new phrase, green tea bitch, emerged on Weibo, Lu Cha Biao. So basically this term is used to describe ambitious women who pretend to be very innocent. And it turns out that this is actually not an entirely new coinage. It's sort of a new development in a whole suite of terms about beverage choice that describe a woman. So here we are getting to the relationship between tea and gender. So in Chinese, there's also a coffee bitch, a cafe biao, and that describes high-end office ladies who constantly mix English with Chinese. And the black tea bitch, the hong cha biao, 
which in Chinese is red tea, bitch, but that's a whole nother story. That is a promiscuous girl who smokes, drinks, and likes eyeliner and low-cut clothes that show her cleavage. Hmm. The final term in this uh, suite of terms is the milk tea bitch, the nai cha biao, which is a kind of woman who who talks in a girlish voice and has extremely sweet looks. She is always kind to everyone around her but only to attract men who will give her presents she will kindly accept. And I should explain here that in China, milk tea is always served very sweet, which might explain that a little bit more. So I thought that was really interesting also because it's funny, even in English, we do often define people by their beverage choice. For example, latte sippers. Mm-hmm. Pumpkin spice is associated with the basic bitch. Absolutely. So there you go. It seems that, uh, yeah, your choice of beverage really might end up uh, defining you, so be careful. Shall I be mother and poor? Oh, please do. My grandmother actually used to say that all the time. As does did mine, all of mine family. So this is one of those phrases that was so familiar to me that the meaning was totally self-evident, I thought. But the internet seems to not share that feeling at all. So there's a lot of American fans, for example, of the BBC Sherlock series who were very confused. In one episode, Sherlock Holmes' brother, Mycroft, uses it. And so one of the top suggestions that Google made for me when I went to look up the phrase was, shall I be mother Mycroft? So obviously a lot of people are trying to find out what the hell he was actually saying in that scene. I mean, that's amazing. Is it not just self-evident? No, apparently not. It was to us, but not to these Americans. Yeah. So for anyone who is still baffled, uh, though I'm sure most will have worked it out by this point, the Oxford English Dictionary has the phrase to be mother as meaning to serve out food or drink, especially to be the person who pours the tea obviously from a teapot. Mm. It's not really relevant if you're making teabag mugs. So, Mm. Olivia, tell us more about your experience with this phrase. Uh, Yeah, well, so as I said, my grandmother said it, but I should be specific that it was my grandmother on one side, um, the more Anglo side of my family. Certainly my Italian grandmother would never have said that. In fact, she didn't actually really even have a teapot or a kettle from memory. I bet my mother will dispute that memory, but I have distinct memories of microwaving cups of water to boil them to put a tea bag in. But, I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's, there's like this white sort of film on top of a tea that you've made in the microwave. Don't know what it is. Huh. I did read in my journey, I came across a blog which was just like, why is there oil on the top of my tea? And it said that that was because the tea had been pan roasted and that brings out the oil of the tea. Oh, yeah. Something, something. Yeah. Do you think that your grandmother's tea bags had been pan roasted? No, they were the cheapest of the crappest. I think Bushels was the brand I vaguely remember. Um, but also in my family, so we did uh, somehow, I mean, it, as I said, it came down through the other side and we still to this day say, shall I be mother to serve food? So you kind of alluded to that and I'd say that we use that more often. Right. Okay. So we only in my family use it when there's a teapot in action. Right. I mean, there is rarely a teapot in action in my family. Yeah. If, if it's there, I've brought it. Yeah. Um, pretty much whenever I hang out with my family at someone's house during the daytime, there's teapot involved. No. So get said pretty often. So it's probably that would indicate, I suppose, a British phrase, given that my family is pretty British. Oh, yeah. So the Oxford English Dictionary actually has its earliest example, a variant like the one that your family uses, not about tea. So it's from 1926 in George Bernard Shaw's 
The Glimpse of Reality, which was apparently a melodrama set in 15th century Italy. Interesting. Yeah. So the example sentence is, let us get to work at the supper. You shall be the mother of the family and give us our portions, Giulietta. Right. This makes sense. And then the OED's first example using the T-specific form is from 1934 in a book written by a guy called Patrick Hamilton called Plains of Cement, which is set in London pubs and around it. Okay. So we're talking, we're talking early 20th century. Yeah, we are according to the Oxford English Dictionary, except that I came across a blog run by a group of academics at the Queen Mary University of London, which they put together as part of a project writing a book that came out in 2015 called Empire of Tea, the Asian Leaf that Conquered the World. And so they have a post about the phrase, which was really interesting, in which they claim that it actually comes about in the 19th century and is first recorded in a poem called The Children's Party from 1873, which was about Victorian children's play. So the poem's by Elizabeth Sill, and it goes, Will you come to our party today, Carrie Wynne? The party is all ready now to begin, and you shall be mother and pour out the tea, because you're the oldest and best of the three. And it goes on. Later in the 19th century, 1894, it is noted in a book called The Traditional Games of England, Scotland and Ireland by Alice Bertha Gom. So then also before the OED references, this blog cites the phrases used by a very minor novelist called William Pett Ridge in uh, books that he wrote between 1904 and 1910. So he was using it all the time. And then John Fowles uses it in a 1963 book. And this use of the phrase shows that it's shifted from being kind of an everyday saying to being something that um, says something about class and also is stale and suburban and kind of old-fashioned and is a kind of sign of being a bit naff and, and out of touch. So why is it the mother that pours? The obvious links to dom domesticity, um, which tea was connected to. As you mentioned already, tea was drunk in the home by women, as opposed to coffee, which was drunk in public coffee houses in England in the 18th century, when tea was, was becoming really a prominent part of British culture. So in a book on the coffee house by Markman Ellis, he points out, A, that tea drinking was more as often associated with women, being consumed in the home and being luxurious. And so it was actually, as you sort of hinted at before, it was often used as a way to show that you had a lot of money. And in fact, because tea was so expensive at that time, I guess before the uh, taxation reforms, the lady of the house was often responsible for keeping a key to the tea caddy, which was locked so that the servants didn't steal it. And they had, um, you know, a tea caddy often with two different parts. One of them was for black tea and the other for green. Very interesting. And is that also the time when the servants were then given the used tea leaves to make I think so, right. yeah. So being a mother, you know, being the mother of the house and being in charge of the tea became connected. And in fact, also Ellis points out that there are numerous poems written on tea in the early 18th century which celebrated its association with women. So tea in comparison to coffee, the history of tea and coffee are very hard to pull apart, I found. Mm. And I think you found the same. Mm -hmm. So tea, because it's not as, I guess, full on as coffee, is associated with women because it's more delicate and there's more this kind of thing about being a connoisseur and noticing subtlety and stuff, which is obviously for ladies. <laughs> um <laughs> 
1700, the poet laureate of the time wrote a 36-page poem about the discovery and production of tea called Panacea, a poem upon tea. And he called it a subject of delicacy and decency, which was therefore suitable for, open quotes, the ladies. Ladies. End quote. Nice. There you go. And there are some great superstitions around women and tea pouring. For example, two people should avoid pouring from the same pot. So only one person can be in charge of this. Wow. Because otherwise, one of them might have ginger-headed twins within a year. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Heaven forbid, Helen. That would be a fate worse than death, I might say. I think a lot of people would say that. So thanks to the Dictionary of English Folklore for that little gem. And so I also wanted to sort of finish by thinking a little bit about, um, as you mentioned, some examples of before, there are some important points in history when women and tea intersect. So uh, Catherine of Braganza, the Portuguese wife of Charles II, is often credited with bringing tea properly to England and setting it up as being a, a fashioned drink. Right, and she was Portuguese, right? And the Portuguese started drinking tea a little bit early because a lot of their missionaries were fed it in China. Oh, fascinating. Mm. Uh-huh. Anna, Duchess of Bedford, conceived the idea of afternoon tea in England because she just couldn't wait to dinner. Yeah, fair enough. She was like, well, we need to have some little sandwiches mm, and cucumber. tiny cakes. Oh, tiny cakes, delicious. And a cup of tea yep. just to, you know, make it through. And everyone liked it. I assume the free-flowing champagne was a later innovation. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And there's also um, a really interesting link that I found in my research, which really we don't have time to go into now, between political uh, feminist movements like suffragism of the turn of the 20th century in both Britain and the U.S., and tea. So women getting together and planning their overthrow would have it tea while they did it. And it makes perfect sense when you think about all the other revolutions that were planned in coffee houses and pubs. Exactly right. So places where people can get together um, for women, it's just the drawing room. Mm. And so I think that's a pretty great place to leave this uh, special International Women's Day tea party. If you would like to get further into the world of tea, you might like to listen to our friends Ingridopedia's episode coming up, which is going to be all about tea. That's a great podcast made in Melbourne where two hosts get together and battle it out with facts about different ingredients. I believe they call it a fact food fight. And so you can get into that. We will be linking to them on social media, so you should keep your ears peeled. That's all from The Expressionists for today and for a little while. In the meantime, how about you uh, listen to our back catalogue and make sure that all of your friends have too. And you could even drop us a line and let us know the idioms that you're just dying for us to cover next season. My name is Helen Rydstrand. My name is Olivia Rosenman. We will speak to you pretty soon. Bye. Bye. You've got to be careful all None the time. of that fucking half skim, half soy, decaf bullshit. I mean, if that's what you want, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Only the smallest modicum of judgment from Olivia. Um, no, if, that's, if that's the kind of bullshit you're into. <laughs> Dear listener. <laughs>